Jesus, we thank you so much for your salvation, for dying for us, for offering us forgiveness of sins, Lord, for giving us your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you promised to never leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't ask a lot for us other than simply just to be steadfast and faithful. Pray, Father, that you help us to truly trust in you, truly wait on you. Pray, Father, that you just help us to be obedient to you. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. Help us to be people who are righteous. Pray, Father, as we read your word, Lord, that it will speak to our hearts, that it will do a work in our hearts and our lives. I pray that what we read and what we hear from your word, Lord, is what we remember and what we think about the rest of this week. Thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. So Malachi is right before the book of Matthew. It's the very last book of the Old Testament. So the book of Malachi. Now hopefully we can make our way all the way through it. There's only there's four chapters, but there's like 56 verses. So we're going to see if we can make our way through the entire book today. Um, the Malachi was a prophet who lived uh, just about 400 years before the time of Christ. So this is the, like I said, the final book of the Old Testament, the final message to the people before God goes silent for about 400 years. There's no prophecy, there's no message, there's no nothing until John the Baptist enters into the picture, which we see in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we have a, we have a, this is like the last message right before a period of silence. And what's interesting is this message that's here is to be very much the, the pe- God talking to the people and the people responding back to God and the God responding back to the people based on what they've said. And many times the people are asking God a question. Now, for what's going on at this point in time, Israel had already been split into two kingdoms. They, the northern kingdom had already been taken away to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. They've already been in captivity for over 70 years. They've already come and returned back. Time has already gone by. And now the people are asking a number of questions as God is asking them questions. And what's interesting that's going on here is that in the book of Malachi, you already have another temple that's been built. You already have the, the sacrifices all going on. Again, you have Israel back to their land. And yet there's, there's a problem, is that all the former glory that was there before, when Moses had the tabernacle, where did God reside? He resided in the Holy of Holies. His presence was there. When Solomon had his temple built, what happened? God resided in the Holy of Holies in that temple. But we see that right before the captivity of Babylon, God's presence leaves the temple and goes away. And now the last temple is built after the, the time of the captivity. And where is the spirit of God? He's not there. God has not returned back to his temple. It seems like things just aren't, aren't going the way that people had been expected. They figured, okay, our captivity is done. We're back in our land. The Messiah should come. Everything should be right. God should return, and everything should be the way it's supposed to be. But there has been a whole lot of nothing. And the people are just simply waiting and waiting, doing the thing God said to do, kind of, and waiting. And the big question is, is well, what's the point? Where is it? Why do we keep doing this, you know, week after week, Sunday after Sunday? And really what's interesting, it's very similar to you and I. Well, we received Christ 20 years ago, been saved, 
see his hand and things. I read many things in his word, but it's like, well, when's it going to happen? Right? I think, okay, it's just got to happen tomorrow. And nothing. And I get up. I go to Sunday. We worship. We sing. We read God's word. And we rinse and repeat. And we rinse and repeat. And at a certain point, it becomes, well, what's the point? When's it going to happen? It's been, for these people, it had already been hundreds of years. And little did they know, after this message, it was going to be 400 more years before anything happens in God's calendar. And then the Messiah actually comes, dies, rises again from the dead, doing incredible things. And it has been over 2,000 years, technically, of silence. And we're waiting for the final return of Christ. And as we're waiting, and we don't know how much longer it's going to be, the question becomes, well, what's going on? How much longer? What's the point? And that is what the book of Malachi is going to address. He's going to hit on some major issues. The people's relationship to God, the relationship to each other, especially in terms of marriage, the relationship to their money, and then it's going to finally be the relationship in their faithfulness to God. And when you look at it, when you look at our own lives, it hits right down at the core of the things that we're concerned about as well, right? doesn't matter how old we are. There's a concern about the resources we have. There's a concern about the relationships we have. And there should be a concern about our relationship with God. So let's start with Malachi chapter 1. It says this, verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Let's pause there for a second. God comes out and says to his people, I love you. And what do the people respond to him? Oh. And sometimes don't we ask God the same thing? He says, I love you. I've done this. And we say, well, okay. Oh. It doesn't feel like it. I think for the people of Israel, it doesn't feel like it. You know, even though they're back in their land, things have not gone really well for them. And the rest of the future of Israel, even to this day, is not the best thing in the world. And they're asking, well, how? And God simply says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Jacob I love, but Esau I hate. Now, does it mean that he actually hated Esau? No, Esau means that he rejected him. Jacob, I've accepted. Esau, I've rejected. What God's saying is this, is I chose you. I chose Abraham, and I promised Isaac. I chose Isaac. But Isaac had two children, twins, Jacob and Esau, right? Were they twins? Yeah, Jacob and Esau. Yes. Yes, they grasped the hill. Yeah. yeah, Jacob and Esau, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and what does he say? He goes, the older, or the older will serve the younger. So God shows that out of these two twins, it's going to be through Jacob. And we find that what happened with the two twins, Jacob actually was the one who was faithful, wasn't perfect, but was faithful. And Esau saw the blessing and all the things in the birthright is something that didn't have value. So God says, I chose you. Now, how are you and I chosen today? We're chosen through faith in Christ. These very promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been extended to us through Christ. So when we, when God says to us, I love you, and we ask, well, how have you loved it? I want to see some proof of it. The proof is in the fact that you and I are in a relationship with him. Period. That's what he's saying to them. The very fact that you know me, the very fact that we have a relationship is proof that I love you. I have chosen you. You belong to me. And he says this about specifically about those nations. Verse 4. 
Edom may say, Edom is another name for Esau. Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. Edom had been uh, terrorizing the land of Israel. They had helped the Babylonians take them over. East, uh, Edom and Israel didn't have very good relationships even to this day. Uh, nothing had ever gone right. And so the thing is that Edom is saying, hey, we're going to rebuild. We're going to do these things because Edom also suffered some punishment. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, the people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And even to this day, the Edomites do not exactly live in the place where they originally were. All the way down to the Roman times, they had to get completely removed from their land. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now, when we look at this, we say, well, well, what's the issue here? So if you were in an agrarian system and you had a lot of sheep and cattle and, and all these things, and God says, okay, what I want you to do is anytime you sin, when you're going to come to me, you're going to actually bring a sacrifice, right? And if you're thinking through this, you're going to say, well, if I got to bring a sacrifice to God, this is a great way to, to call the herd. I'm going to go and give him the ones that aren't the best. I'm going to go, you know, that one's not going to live much longer. That's a perfect sacrifice. That one's blind. That's a perfect set. That one has a genetic defect. I'm not going to let that one interbreed with the other ones. Let's get rid of that one too. But what did God ask for? He said, I want your best. Not all of your best. I just want the best. The best belongs to me. But what happens? What are the people doing? The people are going and giving the worst, not even second best, not even average. They're going to the other end of the spectrum and giving the absolute worst. And that's where he says, he says, you say I'm a father. You say I'm a master. But how come I'm not feeling it? How come I'm not feeling that you feel that way? I mean, it's just like, you know, we make sure to say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We teach our children all these things. We teach them to be respectful, to, to treat adults with honor and respect and all these things. But the moment we get mad, what do we do with God's name? The moment something happens, we attribute it maybe to God and put necessary, we put blame on him. Are we not holding his name in vain and in contempt? When it comes to giving our best, do we give our best to God? Or is he not even getting the average or the middle, but actually getting our worst? I mean, I can think about every, each night we get home from work, spend time with the kids, we finally get the kids off to bed. We watch a few shows on TV. I go upstairs. I read. And I'll read the Bible. And then it'll be time to pray. But I'm getting really tired. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to pray when I get to bed. Go to bed. Dear Lord. And then it's la, la, la. Is that giving God the best? No. It's giving him the absolute last. <laughs> the, the, when I'm the weakest, when I'm the most tired, Lord, now is the time for us to talk. You'd be like me saying, let's go have a chat, and I'm falling asleep while we're talking. You don't want to talk to me. 
So he's saying, you're giving me your absolute worst. And the people are asking the question, like, how are we showing you contempt? What are you talking about? How are we defiling you? And he says, you're doing it because you're bringing me your worst. Verse 9, now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? In other words, the people are bringing this, and they're saying, tell the Lord to be gracious to us. Tell the Lord to bless us. And he's saying, why would I do it when you give me the worst? I asked you for the best. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not let useless fires on my altar. You know what God says? Shut the church. Lock it down. Waste of time. If you're not going to bring me your best, why are you even wasting your time? I, I hate I hate even the lights being on the building. I hate even the altar having fire on it when you're going to bring this to me. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. And we sometimes look at a relationship with God with being like another thing that we have to do. Another thing that's a little difficult. Oh, okay, he wants for me to do this. He wants me to pray. He wants me to read his word. He wants me to do this. He wants me to say no to sin. It's just like, oh my gosh, for what? He's saying they're doing the same thing. You're saying this is a burden. And it's showing out in the things that they're bringing to God. And for you and I, we look and we say, what are the things that we're bringing to God? When we, our relationship with God feels like a burden, there's something wrong. And it's not God's fault. There's something wrong with us. Because what was God's first message to them? I love you. And what is the, what is the question they said? How do you love us? What are you talking about? They're calling to question everything about it. The problem is with the people. He says this, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them at sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. It's interesting because God then goes and says, let me just reset it all for you real quick. This is who I am. Don't take the fact that I'm silent. Don't take the fact that I am patient. Don't take the fact that I'm gracious and completely miss the fact here that I am a great king. And my name will be feared among all the nations. You've got to realize who you're dealing with. And that message is the same for you and I. Who are we dealing with here? Right? When we say, you know, we feel like we're playing with fire sometimes. We have to, we have, this is a warning for you and I too about what we bring to God. Are we bringing our best or does he get the absolute worst? Chapter two, verse one. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. He's saying to the priest, you're supposed to know this. You're supposed to be giving the best. You're supposed to make sure that people aren't bringing diseased and crippled animals 
and then you, you expect that you your blessing is actually blessing the people? He even says, he goes, I would wish that when you sacrifice that animal, because the sacrificial system was a big butcher shop. And what they did is they chopped everything up and all the useful pieces of meat, those things were, were burned and, and offered. Those things were given to the priest for food. But then everything else, the head, the organs, all the stuff, that's so delicious, but all that other stuff would typically get burned and, and thrown away. And God says, I would like to take all that stuff and smush it all over your faces. Because of what you're doing. I wish you did all that refuse of the animal, which some find delicious. Which is We'll get to that. And you'll know that I have sent you this admin, admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered, uh, revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. The thing is, the priests were, were part of this whole issue. The priests weren't even helping out. The priests weren't telling the people, hey, uh, we can't use that one. We needed something else. And then that could open up the question of why are you bringing this? Why would you even think about bringing this? He says this, for the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth, men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do you profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. What is he saying here? He's saying the people are actually intermarrying with women that worship other gods. And invariably what ends up happening is typically... They end up worshiping the same God as the mother or as the wife. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. This is interesting. There's no amount of religiousness. There's no amount of sacrifice. There's no amount of things that we can do that can cover up the sin. He says, even though you may even bring good sacrifices, even though you may bring the best, but if your, your uh, uh, conduct is like this, what good is it? The Lord desires obedience. Verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Well, this is interesting. This is a people that is even praying to God and saying, Lord, why don't you answer? Why don't you respond? Why don't I actually see you doing something? And you actually flood the Lord's altar with tears. And you ask why? Verse 14. It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. He's saying, you guys are acting in sin. Your conduct is wrong, not only in their sacrifices, not only in their religious worship, but also it comes right down to their marriage relationships. 
what they're doing is they're breaking faith with one another. And he's not saying it's even because of someone's being unfaithful to the other. It's just because no longer is their marriage convenient. It's not saying that there's abuse going on. It's not saying there's anything like that. It's just saying simply, they're just saying, you know what? I just don't like them anymore. I just don't like her anymore. I've had enough. Wasn't what I planned. Hasn't worked out exactly the way I wanted. I'm out. But what does God say about this? You have broken faith her because she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Why does God want two believers to be married to one another? So that the children know the one true God. Because if one doesn't, and one doesn't know the Lord, one does, chances are very, very high that the children will not know who the one true God is. He says, that's why. But the thing that he also has added in the midst of this is when the husbands and wives back then thought the issue was just between the two of them, right? I don't like her anymore. I don't like him anymore. Ugh, I'd rather have somebody else. I'd rather just leave and not even deal with this anymore. When they're doing that, God's saying, you forgot somebody in this whole situation. Who was missing from this whole deal? God. He looks and says, wait a second here. I made the two one. This is important to me. When you break a covenant with her, this is saying something about a relationship with me too. Because he says this in that verse 16. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. I hate these things. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. So we see that when the people have the relationship with God messed up, their religious worship is messed up. Their, their, their priests or their pastors, their, their whole thing is messed up. And then it goes right on down to their relationships between the people that should be closest to them and their family, between husband and wife, is messed up. And he says in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil or all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? Now this one gets home. Remember, what is the first question God, God said? He says, I loved you. And the people said, really? I love you, love us. Then, then the next one, it says, you, you've held God in contempt. You, you've done things that are detestable to him. And they said, well, how have we held you in contempt? How are things detestable to you? And now God comes out and says, you guys actually weary me. With your words. That's interesting. I mean, the fact that God even says that statement, the other ones makes it, the other ones feel, okay, yeah, that's the king saying, okay, enough. I, this is how I feel, but you don't understand it. This is what you're bringing to me, but you don't understand it. But now actually God says, you know, this would really just like wears me out. You weary me with these words. And what, and Ava says, well, how can we, how have we wearied you? What is it that that's caused it? When you say all who do evil are in the uh, all who do good in the eyes of the Lord, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, or where is the God of justice? You know what that's saying? Why does it God do something? Why did that person who was very innocent have to get hit by that car? It would have been better if a child molester had gotten hit by the car. Or typical, another one who's in office that does not care, and that's going to make up crazy stuff, and yet God's going to let that person go. Or 
That person lived to be 95 years old and was horrible. Yet this other person that was good and followed the Lord died young. What's God doing? It's not fair. Why doesn't he do something about it? Right? When we say those words, when we look at those things, and when we think that, when we watch the news or we see it online or whatever we're hearing, and it frustrates us why God doesn't just do something and end it, God is saying, here's the thing, you're wearing me out. This is because we're calling into question God's decision-making, God's ability, God's character, everything. And actually, we're putting ourselves in the role of king and judge. And God says, that wearies me. Verse 3. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is interesting where he says, I'm going to send my messenger ahead. Who's he alluding to? Because this verse is quoted later on in the Gospels. John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist is coming. But you would think, okay, great. When John the Baptist comes, this is going to, things are really going to go down. Oh, no, they'd be headed here. Right? He'd just baptize some folks. He prepared the way of the Lord. He let people know that God was offering up forgiveness of sins, but they beheaded him. Okay, well, great. Well, who was he pointing at? He was pointing at Jesus. And we find that it says that the one you are seeking will come into his temple. Did Jesus go into his temple? Absolutely. God himself in flesh was there. He tore the place up in the temple. He did all kinds of things. But what ended up happening with Jesus? He died on the cross. He rose again from the dead and ascends to the Father. Well, well, now what? It, we see that lots of time is going by, but what God's doing is he's laying down. And he's saying these things are, are going to happen. Don't worry. God has got a plan to actually take care of these things, but it's in his timing and in his way. And then verse 2 of chapter 3 actually deals with now the day that you and I are waiting for. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will come like a refiner's fire or like a launderer's soap. I don't know if you and I, we, we can't really appreciate what a refiner's fire is and what a launderer's soap is. We don't have to do things like that. But a refiner's fire would make welding look like something that's, that's kind of uh, uh, cool. Refiner's fire is you're dealing with intense heat to refine and perfect a precious metal, which takes incredible amounts of heat. A launderer's soap back then was they were dealing with actual lye, the stuff that makes you go blind. Right? They were dealing with some harsh chemicals to be able to clean their fabrics. He's saying he is going to come like that. No one can stand before him. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Verse 3, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. And the offerings in Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come nearer to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. What is he saying? When we weary God with asking him, well, he doesn't care. He obviously seems like he lets the, the sinner go just like anybody else, only the good die young, that kind of thing. What is he saying? Oh, I'm going to deal with this. There is a day of judgment that is coming. But who's the one that determines that? God. What is the job of the faithful? 
technically to keep our mouth shut and remain faithful when it comes to him. Just to trust him that he knows what's best. Noted for then you and I ask our children, just trust us, we know, right? And we know like, like this amount with a lot of things. But because we lived it, God's got the whole thing in view, the whole deal. And he's just saying, you can't even conceive in your mind. You can't completely get it. But you just need to trust me because I'm going to take care of it. But it's in his time. And his time is always going to be best. Verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's incredible. You be dude, like God saying, you should be happy I don't change. Because I love you just as much as I love Jacob at day one. All the way through all your craziness, all the way up until the time that you all are complaining. I still love you. Verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. What is God offering up? He's offering up forgiveness. He's offering up reconciliation and restoration with these people who weary him. Even though he's proved to them that, he's, that he is their God, that he is their king, that he loves them. Even though he's been patient with their disobedience. Even though they've done all kinds of things wrong. Even though they blame him for many things. He still says them return to me. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. <laughs> no, we're not taking time. Right? No. <laughs> we knew it was going to come one time. It's building up. But when you look at this, what does it come down to? At the end of the day, we are all concerned about our money. Even all of our discussions end up going to that. I find it incredibly fascinating, incredibly interesting myself because it's always thinking about, okay, do we have enough? Can we pay off this? Can we do that? Do we have enough for retirement? All those things, even with jobs and all that type of stuff. Even when I deal with uh, peers at the, the bank and something's going down, it always comes down to if it's between the, the benefit of our staff or a person's bonus. Do you know what always wins? The bonus. Because the statement's always made, I'm not going to let them mess with my money. But what about their livelihood? I mean, uh, there's all kinds of questions that come up because at the end of the day, money is something that's incredibly personal to us. Right? It's something that defines a lot of things for us. And God says, I want a piece of it. Because you hold it so dear, you hold it so close, you actually love it. And God says, I need you to be willing to give me a portion of it. And here's the part where we mess it all up. Good people all want, what we think are good people, want a piece of it. And it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to God. The way we give to God is we don't let our right hand know or we don't let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Right? When we give it, we should even forget that we ever gave it. It shouldn't even be something that's for public record for anybody to even know. It does not say it has to go into, well, but God's plan had to go in the temple at that point in time. It was a little different. But in our day, it does not have to go to a specific spot. It does not have to go to, oh, my gosh, the local church. Sounds good. But it needs to go to a place. where What is the purpose of those funds that we give to God? To take care of the people of God. Not to enrich the people of God. To take care of the people of God. The orphans, the widows, those who need help. It is meant to be given to people who need help. 
And when God says, when you rob me, when we don't give God that, when we don't give to others in need, when we hold it back, God is saying that is robbery to me. You are to give me a portion, your tithes and offerings. When you give to others, you're giving to me. And he's saying to them, that is part of the show of whether or not we belong to him, isn't it? When we think about the things that we hold on to, the things that we hold dear, the things that we don't want to give up, when we say we're going to follow the Lord, we say we're going to give up everything. We give up our sinful habits, our sinful life. We give our everything to him, and he saves us. And then we say we're going to be obedient to him and do the things that please him. And one of the things that he says that he knows that we hold so dear is our wallet. And he says, what I ask is that you give a portion to me. No different than their, their herds of their animals. When you sacrifice, I want the best. So he says, I want you to give me a portion. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God had promised us earlier on in the book of Deuteronomy, book of Exodus, he had said to them, when you give to me a tenth, when you actually are obedient and do the things I tell you to do, I'm going to bless Israel like no place else. It will be an incredible place. Like literally people in the farm line across the way over there are going to look over and see yours flourishing and they'll have famine. And they're going to say, well, how do you do it? And you're not going to be able to say it's great agricultural techniques. You're not going to say it's because of some climate thing there. It's because God actually blesses this place and people will know God blesses it. For you and I, it's interesting when we get the New Testament, it doesn't say stop this because you don't live in Israel. It says we are to give to take care of the orphans and the widows and the alien, to help them, to take care of them, right? And not knowing, not keeping a record of it, but not even letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing, to give to those in need. And God says, I will bless you. And do you know what would probably be the best blessing we could ever get from being generous in our giving to others because of our love for God? The greatest blessing of all? Contentment. What if it's simply that we get that wonderful, blessed gift of actually being content with what God has given us? Right? Oftentimes we think that if we give, then we're going to get. We give to get. Nope. All right. If I give God this, he's going to bless me with something bigger. If I give God this, he's going to give me something more. How about I give God this and God blesses me with that wonderful thing of contentment, of saying everything is just fine. I have everything that I need. I am full. I'm actually overflowing with it. So God requires that we give. Verse 13. You have said harsh things against me, said the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Get this. You have said it is futile to serve God. Have you ever thought that before? What's the point? It's meaningless. It's futile. You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. This is something else. 
this feeling that's there, this feeling that we think about, this feeling that pops up is not new. The people of God have thought this for millennia. It's not a new thought. At least according to this, it's 2,600 years old. At a minimum. This is all. Why do we keep doing this day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? And we seem like we're giving up. We're, we're not having the fun that we think we could have. We're not doing the sin that we think we could do. We're doing these requirements. We're giving God all this stuff. We're giving him a tenth. We're giving the best of our herd. We're, we're uh, going about like mourners when we could just be living it up and having a ton of fun and just living life crazy. Because it seems like the wicked keep prospering and doing well, and it seems like God keeps allowing them, but it seems like things just keep getting hard for us. And what is God's response to that? He says, you have said harsh things against me. That's pretty incredible. How does God feel about that question and that statement? He says, it hurts. Like, it actually hurts because you're being harsh to me by saying that, by saying it's meaningless. And what's the purpose of remaining faithful to God? It's like saying to someone who loves you, well, that was a waste of time. That marriage was a waste. That life was a waste. Yeah, they love me. Yeah, they give their life for me. Yeah, they devoted themselves. Yeah, they were with me. They never left me or they forsake me. But it seems like, gosh, what a meaningless time this has been. And God is saying that's being harsh because you're saying these things to me. And look what it says in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make, make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This is interesting. Why don't we see that happening right now? Because that day has not come. God has a day planned that only he knows when it will be game over. And there will be a true distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who curse them. But right now, that distinction is not going to be clear. And it is going to feel like the wicked prosper and the good die young and all this. Other, and we're going to ask, what is the purpose of all of it? It seems so meaningless. And everything like why? Because God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why. And actually, that includes you and I, because we don't give God our best. We don't. We rob him. We, we give him defiled things. We wonder if he even loves us, and we ask him, what's the purpose of all this? What's, what's the point? But he says, what do the faithful do? The faithful stop, they listen, and they wait, because they know God has promised he is going to return and will judge. And what is the purpose of our life until then? To be faithful and wait. To be faithful and wait. I wish it was more exciting. I wish there were 10 steps, right? I wish there were three steps. I wish that we could write a Bible study book. We can fill in the blanks about it. But there is, it's as simple as that. He says, simply wait. 
there will come a time where God will make that distinction. There will come a time where it will be abundantly clear to everyone on the face of this earth who the one true God is. And those of us who actually responded in faith to Christ and remain faithful, we will be his treasured possession for all eternity. And we will probably look back after the scope of eternity and kind of from what it says, we'll even bring, bring into remembrance the past. But if we were to look back, we would have said, wow, such a small amount of time. Such a small amount of time that it was to wait and to be faithful. We'll continue on, verse 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. You will be, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, you will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land. With a curse. Let's pray. I do, Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for this, this time in your work. I pray, Father, that when we see some of the questions that um, were asked by your people in the past, and those are the questions that we've asked ourselves. Lord, thank you for showing us how you feel about this, and we repent of those, and we ask you to forgive us for calling into question your character, calling into question your love, calling into question your grace and your patience. And Father, we just pray, Father, that we will be content with being faithful, that we'll be content with being giving to those in need, that we'll be content in giving you our best, that we'll have a firm resolve to people who are patient and faithful, waiting for you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.